0: Well, this morning, our chapel speaker is Dr. Peter Kapsner. Uh, Dr. Kapsner teaches in the Christian Ministries Department here at Northwestern. Uh, He has a PhD in Practical Theology, and and he brings his life experience to the classroom as he explores the current issues facing students today. His areas of specialty include New Testament, human sexuality, ethics, church history, engagement with culture, ministry leadership, and spiritual formation. Dr. Kapsner has been married to Hallie, his wife, for over 29 years, and they, live, and they have five children. Would you please help welcome to the stage this morning Dr. Peter Kapsner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think expertise is a little aggressive to describe what I'm like. Um, I'm not sure I'd be an expert in any of those things, but it's nice to be here with all of you this morning, awfully bright, and of course, if it wasn't nice to be with all of you, I probably wouldn't say it anyway, right? if it was just sort of lame to be here with all of you, but I've been on sabbatical for the better part of nine months, and so to be back in this environment, uh, to be with all of you, I, I brag about the time in the classroom with you because of just truly how much I learn, the engagement, the interaction. My transformation and leadership class is here this morning, somewhere in some of the front rows, and, and, um, <laughs> and they know they're a bit overrated, but I'm glad that they're here uh, as, as well. Uh, The theme, of course, for chapel this year has been thy kingdom come thus far, and that, as I'm sure you know, is part of the Lord's Prayer. And if you grew up in the Catholic tradition like I did, that would have been a prayer that would have been familiar within your weekly rhythm of mass. You would have said it at a certain kind of time. If you grew up in the Protestant church, then it would have appeared at seemingly random times when you didn't know for sure when it would happen, and it would also be a bit of Confusion potentially in your mind, especially uh, how many of you uh, raise your hand if you said trespassers growing up in the Lord's Prayer, right? Or like debtors, how many of you said debtors in this, in this prayer? When I would get to that point, I would always sort of mumble it because I didn't really know for sure what tradition I was in and swallow it. And so I was confused. I was confused by that. And I was confused by whether this prayer was some kind of set of magic words did I need to say it exactly in the right kind of way, and the right kind of cadence, with the right kind of words, in order to have the realities of this prayer energized among us, including thy kingdom come, which was also a very confusing part of the Lord's prayer for me because I didn't really know what that meant. What would it mean if Jesus' kingdom came among us? I would just sort of say it. I would wonder. I didn't know. And it just made me think, well, perhaps there's an example that I can give this morning that would help us maybe take some of the mystery out of this Lord's Prayer, and especially saying, thy kingdom come, by using a different example of a different kind of kingdom, that if it came among us, we would probably experience our life somewhat differently It would be maybe mildly disruptive and cute, uh, or possibly entirely disruptive to our way of life, and that is the kingdom of Scotland. Now, those of you that know me know that I spent a lot of time in Scotland. I still do to this day, and I love the ways of life in Scotland. So what if I woke up each morning, and here was part of my Lord's Prayer version of Scotland. Hey, Scotland, the one overseas, we love your little country. So let your kingdom come, your ways of life be done here in Roseville as in the UK. Now, if we prayed that, and we're here in Roseville, and the ways of life of Scotland began to be present among us, a lot of things would begin to change. We would start making very different linguistic choices, for example. I know when we first moved there, uh, I thought, hey, this is an English-speaking country. It's going to be exactly the same. (laughs) I was surprised, because what I'm wearing right now in front of you, these are not tennis shoes or sneakers, they would suddenly become trainers, which makes sense, because as much as I love a good game of tennis, I haven't played it in like 25 years, so I feel a bit fraudulent wearing these and calling them tennis shoes, I'm not an elf or a hobbit, so I don't sneak around in them, or why we even got that name for them, so they're trainers, If you're wearing a long sleeve, I'm not, but if you're wearing a long sleeve shirt this morning, I see Sabine is, uh, if you're wearing long sleeves this morning, that would no longer be a sweater or a pullover. It would be a jumper. And I have no idea where that comes from. I mean, I'm not sympathetic to the the word sweater because I don't want to sweat in whatever I'm wearing, but it wouldn't exactly make me jump either if I put one on. We would start saying tomato, instead of tomato. I remember like when I got so culturally sophisticated, having lived there for an extended period of time, I-, I couldn't wait to say, I'll have a bit of tomato on my pizza. And I just felt like such a native insider right at this point, until I went to the little cafe where J.K. Rowling did quite a bit of her original transcript and manuscript for Harry Potter loved to work there. You could look out the windows and see the graveyards that gave her quite a bit of inspiration for the names in her books, the castles, Hogwarts, all of it was out the window. And I walked up to the counter and I said, I will have a bowl of your potato soup. (laughs) My English buddy was like, dude, we say potato over here too. Uh, If you get a wound in Scotland, we'd have to change, and it was brought here, and in Scotland's ways of life, thy kingdom come, or dwelling among us, we wouldn't be putting on a Band-Aid anymore, we'd be putting on a sticky plaster. (laughs) I love that word. I mean, it makes sense, right? that you're putting on a sticky plaster. And if we could just start adopting that linguistic choice, we would crush the monopoly that is Band-Aid where they, they sort of have marketed through, through deceit and manipulation that their product actually, no, it's, just a, it's a brand. It's not the actual sticky plaster. It's kind of like Kleenex. You don't reach for a Kleenex, you reach for a tissue paper. Scotland came, it wouldn't just change our linguistic choices. It would change some of our institutions as well. We would have socialized medicine, for example. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a political conversation, <laughs> it's chapel. So we would have socialized medicine, and I remember at one point Hallie, my wife, and I had to go to the infirmary, which is the worst name for a hospital, right? It was called the infirmary, and we went to the infirmary, and we found that within the context of socialized medicine, incredibly kind and caring and competent nurses and doctors, they really knew what they were doing, but for some reason they didn't have the resources available to them that we all have here. It was a lot cheaper, but that's because they didn't have any resources. And so we had to have our blood drawn at one point and they literally, after the blood draw, did not have any sticky plasters in the hospital. In the hospital! That's like going to a bowling alley and there's no bowling balls. You can bring your own, but that's kind of weird and you know scotland is ruled by england so we'd have to make some different choices here we might have to i don't know, be ruled by bethel or something <laughs> yeah but it's not no this is no they're friends they're f- friends but we could send like a spy to bethel and like get them in the senate and then they would eventually ascend to be the king and and we would know better uh words change institutions change if we prayed thy scotland come we would change our words, we'd be changing our institutions, food would change, food would change for sure. Chips, uh, instead of fries, we'd be eating chips, and instead of chips, we'd be eating crisps, that's been a source of endless confusion for me. We would all start eating haggis. Anybody know what haggis is? So, it's a sausage national dish of Scotland. It's a sausage that consists of the leftover vital organs of the sheep after they've taken the rest of the meat so it's ground up heart and lungs and all sorts of other innards and they put it into a spicy sausage to mask i think what it actually is and it tastes relatively good but this would be maybe more disruptive in our life than just word choices and institutions This would be maybe a little bit like the first church where the early Christians were being accused of their weird culinary habits, right? They were eating of the body and the blood of Christ. It was really disruptive. They got persecuted for that. If you brought Haggis to the company Christmas party, I bet you would get persecuted. (laughs) Clothes would change. Guys would wear kilts. And and that's kind of cool, right, when you first see somebody in a kilt, except here's what you maybe don't know, that if you are a proper Scottish dude wearing a kilt, that is all that you are wearing. (laughs) (laughs) Be very careful how you sit. That would be a bit disruptive in our social settings, would it not? I, uh, I did, when it was time for me to graduate, I did take about 45 minutes, I think it took me, with a YouTube video to put on my rented kilt. I didn't go proper Scottish on my kilt, but it's one of those moments I took a train from Linlithgow into Edinburgh, and I think a, a woman, she was about 147 years old, just <laughs> ogled me mercilessly. I was just killing it like I was an incarnation of Robert the Bruce. We would be dressing weird, we would be opening Haggis stands in Rosedale, people would start looking at us differently and we wouldn't wouldn't fit in. If thy kingdom came and it was Scotland, who and how we are in the world around us probably wouldn't look much like the world around us. We'd be adopting different practices and people would probably start making fun of us, gossiping about us, potentially persecuting us Maybe not yet killing us, but there's one more thing we could adopt from Scotland that probably would push us over the edge, and that would be if we all started driving on the left side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> that would be disruptive, right? We'd be getting arrested, thrown in jail. It'd be so New Testament. like we would, it, would just, it would feel like those early Christians. Well, I think you can probably see some of the connection. Again, you pray this Lord's Prayer, and you pray this phrase, thy kingdom come, and it feels kind of like this chant or this mantra or something we think we're supposed to do, and we hope we get the words right. But what if we prayed it and actually meant it? What if now instead of Scotland's kingdom coming, what if it was actually the kingdom of Jesus dwelling among us? not some abstract concept, not some theological idea. It's funny, when we we read the Bible, I think we tend to think of the Bible as a way to argue theology or a list of moral commands, or maybe we do it in the morning before a pool of liquid at sunrise, like the holy hour, to prove that our discipleship is sugar. (laughs) The Bible is just simply an immersive experience about the realities of an actual kingdom with an actual God who actually exists and actually dwells among us. And the possibility of his ways of life crashing into our ways of life are real. And if they did, I would at least suggest for your consideration that our ways of life would probably look really different than the ways of life of the world around us. We tend to think of God as sort of a companion with whom to do the journey, not the disruptive center of the universe in the midst of a cataclysmic struggle of light and darkness, and if we read his word, if we studied history and were with people, we might discover a disruptive kingdom that might dwell among us, and it might look and sound different than many of the ways in which we have experienced his kingdom. Just take, just take some of the Beatitudes. I've got four ways this morning to kind of wrap things up. There's bazillions within the text because it's this immersive kingdom thing. But take some of the Beatitudes that you've talked about here already so far in, chapter, in chapel, and in chapter five of Matthew, uh, it says right away when Jesus steps out onto the mount, first sermon, and he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, or literally blessed are those who know that they don't have what it takes. Blessed are those that know they don't have what it takes relationally, intellectually, spiritually, to do the work of the kingdom in the light against the darkness. Blessed are those who know they don't have what it Hey, so you, you all are growing up in a society that is nothing like kingdom life because all of the language of the society and how it's meant to energize your future is that you do have what it takes. You can be whatever you want to be. That is the slogan of Western individualistic culture. You can be whatever you want to be. And make sure you go out there and do big things for Jesus. Study hard, work hard, build the resume, do all of those things, and then you'll finally be in a position to do things for Jesus, except that what Jesus says is, blessed are those who know they don't have what it takes, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who get to the end of their rope. Blessed are those that are not playing games of fraudulence. Blessed are those that are being real with the pain and sorrow and anxiety and turmoil of the soul because they begin looking to a different source besides their ability to build their resume and do big things for Jesus. That's a little bit what his, I would like to be a part of that kind of kingdom. I think I could probably take a breath from time to time, as opposed to running from thing to thing to thing. Second, beatitude, blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. And I should be real clear there that in terms of mourning, we're all going to experience suffering and trial and turmoil, and within God's kingdom, that's just real, and it's not evidence of God's faithfulness if our circumstances change. The evidence of God's faithfulness is right there in the beatitude. It says, as we mourn, as we experience sorrow and loss and failure in this life, the promise is not that our circumstances will change, the promise is that we'll be comforted. Blessed are those that mourn, they will be comforted. And you see the kingdoms in which we operate, that we sometimes, I think, thoughtlessly blend into the kingdom of Jesus and thy kingdom come, when we invite that in, the kingdoms of this world Are too often filled with falsities spewed by the Botox pastors and their shiny white teeth, promising you that if you just have the right amount of faith, then God will change your circumstances in a way that is favorable for you. It wasn't that long ago that Hallie and I know of a family. She, The the mother of two young children, maybe six and ten, she got a cancer diagnosis and was part of one of these charlatan faiths don't say the word cancer, just have enough faith. If you pray hard enough, don't give it a foothold. God wants your best life. Now you will be healed. And she died. And guess whose fault it was? Well, the widowed husband and the six and the 10-year-old didn't have quite enough faith and nor did she. That's not thy kingdom come. That's some weird version. And thy kingdom come... Jesus says, you will have trouble. Just, you will. You will have trouble. Just remember, I've overcome the world. You will have trials of many kinds. Blessed are those that are persecuted and cursed. God's faithfulness is not evidence in how well our circumstances are working out. God's faithfulness is that his comfort is present in the midst of all of the circumstances of this present darkness. So thy kingdom come, because I need it. I need your comfort. I need to be assured we even take it out of Matthew now for a second, a third one would be, I need to be assured that where my sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. I think sometimes in our merit-based society where you get ahead based on how well you are doing, uh, sin is something, one of those things that, "Mm, not doing too well. So we keep it in hiding and we play games of pretend and we feel like where our sin abounds may be demerits will abound or judgment will abound or condemnation will abound. But if we said thy kingdom come and it actually came, what we would find where our sin abounds, what grace abounds all the more. And not a grace that is there to affirm all of what we do and not a grace that is meant to embrace everything as being fine. See, grace actually requires something to be wrong. It's one of the greatest confusions that we have about grace is that we think grace means affirmation and everything is fine. No, grace assumes something is wrong, but in the midst of it, you have the king of heaven who is for you. So come into the light and experience the transformational power of his spirit to bring actual healing and wholeness and shalom into your life. Grace just calls us into the light where we can actually have healing. One last one I would submit to your consideration, and this one's probably harder. Disruptive, thy kingdom come. Sounds nothing like the kingdoms in which we walk in this world But if his kingdom came, one thing that would probably be true about our relationships is that we would no longer be in conflict with one another. You see, our battle is not against what? It's not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and forces of this present darkness to whom this version of the world is currently captive. Our battle is never against one another. We are all on the same side. We are all on the same side. Unfortunately, within the deceptions of our world, we end up creating identity statements about ourselves based on transient circumstances or locations or temporary experiences and we name identities about ourselves over and against other people's identities, and we find ourselves at conflict with one another, and no longer can we see that the only identity that is not transient, that is fixed, that is eternal, eternal, is that we are image-bearing children of the king. Every single person, our battle is never against flesh and blood. It's never against flesh and blood. But we live in these deceited and deceitful identities. I can give you some more sort of fun examples and get to some of the harder ones that I think if we could actually embody and actualize thy kingdom come, it could change and bring shalom in ways that the world has no idea. One identity that I've walked away from is the identity of being a Vikings fan. Of <laughs> <laughs> all the evidence in the world to walk away from that identity. I know, I know. So... But if I was, a, if, I, if that's an identity statement, do you hear the identity statement in the phrase Vikings fan? I'm a Vikings fan means that that's my identity. But would it be better to say that I'm an image bearing child of a king who currently has emotions rise and fall when he watches his hated beloved purple? And guess what? If the purple got bought out by Utah and moved to Salt Lake City, and they're no longer the Vikings, or I'm not sure what the Salt Lakes, I don't know what they would be, uh, I wouldn't have an identity crisis because I was never a Vikings fan to begin with. What I was is an image-bearing child of the king who was rooting for the Vikings for a period of time in his life. But there's no identity crisis in that. I'm not a professor. I mean, I am. I am. But to put our our identity in a role that we have confuses the issue. Because what happens if I'm no longer a professor? If I lose my job or decide to move on? Well, I don't have an identity crisis in that because all I was was an image-bearing child of the king who is trying to actualize the beautiful light of his eternal kingdom in the role of a professor that is temporary and transient. And then I'm not in competition with a bunch of other professors and a bunch of other people that might want my job, or I try to, I just always over and against people. We're all just on the same team. Maybe more controversial, I'm not an American. And that is in no way an anti-American statement. I love our country. I really love our ways of life that we have here had a chance to stand on the beaches of Normandy at one point, and I I, just—I found myself surprisingly weeping. I was not exactly a war buff, but I was always appreciative of sacrifices made. And then when I stood on that beach and saw just the graves as far as the eye could see of young men who had given their lives to stand in the way of Hitler, I just stood there and wept. But I'm not an American because lines on the map are always either purchased or gained through bloodshed and they're temporary, and they're transient, and the scriptures say kingdoms rise and fall. If I took my geography test from 30 years ago when I was in 10th grade, I would fail miserably because of how many lines in the map have changed even in 30 years. And if the Canadians who are currently mustering on the border, because like 90% of them live on the border, right? We don't know it, but they're mustering to take over the United States. And we're, I know, International Falls is the front of the line, right? So if I was living in International Falls and I woke up and the flag of Canada was suddenly flying and people were saying, "Oh Canada, my new home and native land," I, I wouldn't have an identity crisis, <laughs> because I'm an image-bearing child of the King who currently lives in America. And you know what? When I go to Scotland or Iceland or France or some of the places I've had the privilege of being, I'm the same person. But we fight over all of these different. Identities, we fly as a result of some of these national identities, we end up dividing and identifying ourselves by a color of our skin, by the country of our background. And we make assumptions about one another based on those identities, and the whole thing is one big deceitful enterprise because we just simply can't see that our battle's not against flesh and blood, and all we are image bearing children of the king. in that what's going on in this world is a cataclysmic battle, as I've said, of light and darkness, where there are some who have been rescued by the resurrection power of the one who came out of that grave, and there are others that are still captive to the darkness, and there's just one thing going on, image bearers hopefully rescuing other image bearers by the power of the spirit away from this present darkness. But we're so busy fighting one another. It's a very effective tactic of the darkness. One more this is probably the hardest one. Talk about it in my sexuality class often, but I've heard along the way sometimes men are described as just to use an example are described as um, because of the pervasiveness of pornography they're described as sexual hunters as if that's an identity that the reason why men are drawn into porn is because they just have sort of a design about them that makes them a sexual hunter and so they're they're attracted to naked images on a screen just because that's part of how they're wired that they have preconscious thoughts about certain things that they're, they can't really even control, they just happen, and they try to pray them away, and for some reason it doesn't work, and so they're five years, and they just want to be, but they're sexual hunters, and so they have an identity statement. If we wanted to give it a letter, it would be SH, sexual hunter. You can probably see where I'm going. We've made all kinds of sexual identity statements based on pre-conscious experiences and attractions and things that are extremely real but I would at least suggest your consideration that they are not fixed identity statements. See, the reason why it's so hard to get out of porn is because we have such a thin version of discipleship and we have no idea what it means to walk out a painful journey of suffering and sorrow, five, 10, 15 years, to experience actual freedom from it versus managing its behavior. And so we just said, men, you're sexual hunters. The best you can do is bounce your eyes. And I'm always like, ba lo, ni Because I don't know a single relationship where it's been healthy, where the man has been bouncing his eyes the whole time, but would really like to if his wife or significant other wasn't watching. That's not freedom. That's just behavior management. You're still enslaved. But we don't know these things. And we've bought into these lies that we have all these different identities based on actual attractions and desires and and everything. Those are very, very real, but they're all illusory. They're not fixed identities. Identities. And what I would suggest to you in the heat of this whole LGBTQ movement right now is that if you're not part of the movement, listen carefully and kindly to the experience that people are having that are very real with dysphorias and attractions and, and things that they don't fully understand. Listen very carefully and do not dismiss. And if you're part of the LGBTQ community, then listen very carefully to people that are really struggling, that, that want to love and not, not sort of separate from but don't understand how all of this works. See, our battle's not against flesh and blood. We're on the same team. It doesn't mean everything is right that we're doing. Remember, grace does not affirm, grace does not embrace, grace does not say it's all good, grace assumes that we're all deceived on some level, that there's something wrong in our world. We are in the midst of this present darkness. And because that's true, we can come into the light together and figure out together within the resurrection power of the spirit that dwells among us to live a different kind of life where we can actually find true shalom and freedom together because we're not on the same side or we're on the same side, not just trying to negotiate a bunch of truces with one another. We're on the same side. Would you stand? I'll just close with a version of the Lord's Prayer. That's maybe a bit of a improv paraphrase. But again, as we wrap things up, thy kingdom come is not a mystery. It's not some theological idea way out there. It just simply is the ways of life of the kingdom that are all throughout this incredible story of light and darkness. And so it's our father, the one who is in the heavens, let your name be magnified. Let your kingdom come and let your ways of life be done right here on earth as it already is happening in the heavens. We trust you for our sustenance. We will not build storehouses in order to relieve our anxiety. Please be quick to forgive us as we are quick to forgive other people. And within our frailty, lead us not towards those paths of temptation. And as we are there, deliver us from the evil one because here's what we know. We're on the same team and yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Blessings as you go. You're dismissed.